0: Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Thanks for joining us. I just spoke with Kathleen Vogel about her new book, Phantom Menace or Looming Danger, a new framework for assessing bioweapons threats, that was published in 2013 by the Johns Hopkins University Press. This is a fascinating book on many levels, and you don't have to just take my word for it. You'll also hear my cat chiming in about how fascinating she thinks it is over the course of the interview. Um, She meowed very often, um, and she meowed, I think, in particular when she found uh, Kathleen Vogel saying things that she found especially interesting or relevant to cats, perhaps. I don't know. So what the book does is it looks at the history and potential future practices of U.S. bioweapons threat assessment by policymakers and by the intelligence community. It does this by looking specifically at three really important case studies that allow Vogel to introduce and analyze in detail, the social context and other factors that shaped the production of knowledge around bioweapons assessment at really important moments in the history of the modern U.S. that continue to shape policymaking um, and intelligence gathering by the United States. It's a really, really interesting book that offers very, very detailed, but very elegantly written and very readable accounts that put flesh and texture on some of the kinds of phenomena that many of us might know on some level are important and are happening, but really have no idea um, what's actually happening on the ground. So how does, for example, um, the U.S. policy-making community or U.S. intelligence community decide that Iraq has a mobile bioweapons unit? How is that information actually produced, and what are the different ways that issues of expertise, of secrecy, of um, written knowledge production? of other kinds of um, activities of practice involved? How how do they shape what actually results at the end and and has incredibly high stakes that shape policymaking and shape international and transnational policies? Um, So it's a fascinating book. It's really, really relevant. Uh, Kathleen Vogel is not only offering us a study here and an analysis, but real concrete, detailed Programs for how to move forward and how to create a conversation about these absolutely critical issues that bring together the academic interests of science, technology, and society of science studies with very, very important contemporary political, social, and technological, biological issues of global importance. So I hope you enjoy. I certainly did. And here we go. We're here today to talk with Kathleen Vogel about her new book, Phantom Menace or Looming Danger a New Framework for Assessing Bioweapons Threats. Welcome to New Books in STS, Kathleen, and thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today about what was a totally fascinating book.
1: Well, thanks so much for this opportunity just to chat a bit more about it.
0: Oh, of course. Um, I mean, the the book itself, I'll say for, before I um, start asking you any questions about it or asking you about your background, I want to say for listeners, this is a book that's written in an exceptionally, um, at the same time, very, very accessible, very, very clear really, really clearly organized way, but also in a way that's very elegant and very articulate in terms of a contribution to the STS literature. So congratulations right off the bat, and I hope this reaches a really, really wide readership and that listeners who may not think of themselves as typically reading an STS book will pick it up also because it's really readable. Oh, well, thanks so much. So could you start us off, Kathleen, by saying a little bit about yourself and your background? I think um, you had mentioned a little bit earlier that you started your academic life started studying chemistry. So what brought you to STS, and can you talk about that trajectory a little bit?
1: Sure. So I started out um, in graduate school doing a Ph.D. in biophysical, bio, and organic chemistry. And it was sort of
0: during that time
1: that I got interested in thinking about science beyond the lab. And I started taking some science policy uh, courses at a public policy school uh, while I was in graduate school. And it was at that time that in one of those courses, I got exposed to the whole fascinating area of weapons of mass destruction. And I must admit at the time, I never really thought that, um, I'd be interested in weapons. I'd never really thought about weapons much, or at least not professionally. Um, but I definitely saw after, um, and I remember actually at the time we had been studying in that course, uh, Iraq's, um, d- uh, weapons of mass destruction programs. And I was oddly fascinated by, thinking about some of the technical details of the weapons and, and how my technical background might be relevant to understanding uh, these kinds of security policy issues. And it was kind of from that that I got connected to a, a professor in the public policy school who was actually a physicist by training, but who um, in terms of his research was doing a nuclear uh, weapons policy related research. And he basically introduced me to the fact that there was this whole career path in science policy for people with technical backgrounds and, Uh, from that, and uh, his name was Frank von Hippel at Princeton University, and he was a wonderful mentor to me uh, at that time. And so it was sort of from that that after graduate school, I, uh, through uh, Frank von Hippel's um, suggestion, I went and did a more policy-oriented postdoc instead of a traditional science postdoc, um, specifically on uh, policy, security policy, science policy issues um, at the Monterey Institute for International Studies. And it was from there that I, I would say I got More grounded in thinking about uh, chemical and biological weapons issues. I had the wonderful opportunity there to work with um, the late Jonathan Tucker, um, who was also a wonderful mentor for me, and uh, some other folks. And so that was essentially my entree into the policy community. Uh, And I entered from being a technical person and technical background, uh, my entree to these issues was that first, as a policy, interested in the policy dimensions, the policy issues. And it was after spending some time, uh, you know, doing research uh, on the policy side that I started getting frustrated, but what I saw were some limitations in how existing policy research, existing policy discourse uh, sort of understood biological weapons proliferation issues. They just seemed to up short, and um, it was actually through um, ironically enough talking to uh, Professor Judith Reppy, uh here at Cornell um, that she recommended that I read um, Donald McKenzie and Graham Smarty's uh, classic article on the role of tacit knowledge in nuclear weapons development. And that was my first exposure to uh, STS. And um, the mo- from the moment I read that article, I was like, wow, this is really opening a whole new world of understanding to me. Uh, about weapons development. And I also found it resonated with my own laboratory experiences as a graduate student. Uh, It helped me reflect more on just what I knew from my own uh, lab practices. And then also it helped me to understand. I was working at that time on trying to understand the Soviet Biological Weapons Program, and it resonated with some uh, research that I'd collected from data interviews with talking with some of these weapons scientists about their own work. It helped me understand and, and put in a more analytic framework this data that I was collecting. So that was essentially my entree um, into STS. And then I did some additional kind of reading in that area and then had the wonderful opportunity later on to uh, then uh, come and be in the STS department here at Cornell. Um, So it was sort of a roundabout way. Um, It wasn't a planned trajectory, but uh, I've really, I will say I've really uh, benefited a lot from STS ways of thinking about technology. And, And again, I've just found that they've really resonated with my own kind of laboratory experiences, and then what, in terms of my policy research, my field research, what I was seeing, and and the kinds of data that I was collecting.
0: It's so interesting because so many aspects of what you are describing as what brought you into the field in the first place are really, really powerful aspects of the argument of the book as well, right? So we'll talk, I hope, over the course of our conversation about um, the issue of technical or technological expertise and tacit knowledge and even um, access to interviews with some of the mm. scientists, right? And so it's it's actually yeah. really interesting to hear this backstory. So the book we're here to talk about, for listeners who may not uh, already be aware of it, explores the recent history and contemporary practices by both U.S. government groups and also non-governmental analysts of considering bioweapons threats, so much of the kinds of cases that you've been um, talking about even in this first five minutes. It ultimately uses this foundation to not just analyze past and contemporary practices, but also, and importantly, and this is one of the really fascinating aspects of the book, to actually suggest a new way, and several new ways actually, to approach the analysis of bioweapons technology and threats of uh, weapons of mass destruction based in part on integrating aspects of STS methodologies and analysis in ways that you've um, alluded to already. So how did you come to this particular Um, Well, you've talked a little bit about how you came to this particular topic, but especially since the book itself didn't originate as a dissertation, Mm -hmm. Um, this, you know, imagining (laughs) in the first years of a um, of a full time teaching job, I think any of us who have been in that position can um, absolutely sympathize with. the the task of creating um, a manuscript and that that's not based on the dissertation so how did you decide um, to create this book project and can you talk a little bit about the process of going from um, basically you know starting with the the seed in a dream right or an an idea in a dream and going to um, what ultimately is this fantastic book that we're talking about today Sure.
1: Well, I would say it was definitely an evolutionary uh, process. Um, you know, when I started my faculty position at Cornell, I'd already been doing a lot of work related to different bioweapons case studies, most particularly the Soviet bioweapons program. And and I was getting more interested then also in looking at, um, you know, uh, bioweapons policy issues and debates happening in the United States. And so there were already certain cases and issues that I was looking at. I would say I didn't really have an overarching theoretical framework that I, you know, was, uh, using and, um, that I had a clear concrete idea for a book. So I'd say the book in essence kind of emerged more organically as I was working with different case studies. And then through, you know, the wonderful scholarly influences and discussions that I had here at Cornell with, um, different, uh, STS faculty and graduate students and presenting some of my work that, um, and you know, listening to a lot of other scholars that would come to Cornell and doing some additional readings, that you know, essentially the the focal point for the book emerged, um, uh, and it you know, in a way that um, you know, integrated uh, sort of more STS ways of, of thinking about technology within um, these different policy cases that I was already. Um, investigating and, and looking into and and the Iraq uh, chapters the art case study that I talk about in the book is also something that kind of emerged um, you know once I was already here at Cornell and had been doing some other work I became fascinated in uh, some of the different you know press reports and different investigations that were going on with some of the intelligence failures related to The intelligence leading up to the 2003 Iraq War, and so I began looking at that as a case study. But it wasn't a case study that I had originally planned um, to work on. But um, so, although I'd love to say that it was a well thought out, executed book, it was sort of more um, an evolution. uh, You know, a um, uh, a lot of circumstances that just sort of merged together to create, I guess, the book that you see and. And also just a lot of wonderful dialogues with um, other scholars here at Cornell and elsewhere that helped refine my thinking, too.
0: Well, for a book that emerged organically like this, I mean, congratulations, because it's so carefully and well-organized and so clearly argued. That it's, um, I think it's an incredible accomplishment. And it,
1: it gives me <laughs> well, thanks. I would say that as it was a work in progress, it wasn't so carefully, it went through various versions of editing and uh, scrubbing, and um, so I'm glad the end product is, uh, is better than the work in
0: progress. So, so as we let's get into the book itself. Um, okay. As we've been talking uh, talking about this, the book is divided into four parts, so parts one through four. And each one of these parts of the book show how social factors, and we'll talk about the importance of this. This comes from, um, I think, a, a grounding in STS methodologies that's brought out so importantly in the book. The social factors at different levels, the laboratory level, organizational levels, and political levels all shaped U.S. bioweapons assessments since the Cold War. So the first chapter, which is part of the first part of the book, introduces a problem that the rest of the book is going to respond to. And this is a, a really, really important problem. Despite, as you, I think, put it in the book, the devotion of lots of new resources and time and energy and money to bioweapons assessments, U.S. analysts and policymakers are still either under or over estimating the capabilities of different actors. So actors at the state level and actors at the non-state level, terrorist groups, etc. to produce and use bioweapons. And so there are real stakes to this study. This isn't simply a study of something that happens to be inherently interesting, which it does, but the stakes are the U.S. doesn't have the ability, as you're arguing here, to make accurate assessments of the bioweapon capabilities of other actors, and that's actually really crucial for all kinds of reasons that, you know, we don't even need to articulate because it's pretty obvious. So the book looks at aspects of the U.S. bioweapons assessment and defense uh, policymaking since the end of the Cold War, and often aspects of that that have been assumed or taken for granted. One of the major goals, as we've uh, talked about a little bit, is to bring an STS perspective on the sociology of scientific knowledge to bear on these issues. Okay, so, you're, so, I'll just lay out really briefly and then um, we'll go into some questions. So, the book illustrates the importance of a social context um, to bioweapons development and assessment. And again, we'll talk about um, this in, in much more flesh in the moments to come. through looking at three primary case studies, and each of these case studies has ongoing relevance for the U.S. So, we'll look at these in turn as we come to the chapters. One is the development of a Soviet anthrax bioweapon, the other, or another, is the assessment of the purported mobile bioweapons program of Iraq. And then finally, um, although this comes up early in the book, the lab practices be- behind some recent synthetic genomics experiments, and we'll talk about those. Okay, so um, so because the methodology of this book is so interesting, I wanted to start off a little bit by asking you just to talk about a couple of aspects of that methodology that seem really important and really interesting. So first, um, the case study approach. You make an argument in the book, that you are, you know, you're choosing to use case studies, it's really important to understand these phenomena through case studies as a specific kind of methodological commitment. And my cat is meowing in the background. She completely <laughs> agrees. So, so two of us right now are completely on board. Um, but can you talk, can you talk about that a little bit um, as a methodological mm-hmm. commitment and a choice, the, the importance of case studies for understanding this phenomenon or these sets of phenomena?
1: Yeah, I would say, you know, my decision to rely on in-depth, uh, micro-level detailed case studies in this in this book was because I, I had always felt that that was lacking uh, when I was, you know, part of, and I still am, but, you know, it definitely and you know, I was sort of wearing my hat in the policy community, there was often kind of a gloss um, when talking about, let's say, examples of state or non-state bioweapons programs. There was always the quick assumption to sort of skip through um specific local level details about how these actors worked or how they organized or carried out their program. Um, or, and in particular, a lot of the technical details um, I felt were lacking. And this is not to say that researchers didn't report on this, but, you know, over time I just felt that there was a lot that was not analyzed about what went on in, in these programs. And so, um, it, you know, my my desire was to sort of really open that up in these different case studies to really um, look very closely, deeply at what went on in the laboratories, let's say, in particular cases, or what went on in, um, you know, some of these um, state like the Soviet BioWeapons Program, uh, and to um, conduct interviews and research that would really uh, hone in deeply uh, and unpack, essentially, maybe assumptions that we might have about how, how the science and technology worked. Um, and again, my interest was to sort of show the importance of details, to show the importance of local context, um, uh, to show the importance of, uh, you know, as, as we've talked about a little bit earlier, kind of the social dimensions of technology and what that actually means uh, in practice, and to show specific examples of that um, through these case studies. And again, my interest there I mean, there is definitely an interest in speaking to the scholarly STS community, but my work has also. Animated by trying to offer something to the policy committee and saying there are these very important details that um, have not really been part of the conversation and they're very critically important to understanding how we can assess some of these threats
0: Great thank you now you've mentioned um, already the importance of interviews as part of your research process and Um, the ethnographic analysis is absolutely crucial to the study at every level. So can you talk a little bit about that process as part of um, the research for the book? How did you arrange access to the kinds of interviews that you needed to make this study possible? Were there any notable aspects of that process or practice for you that stand out as being particularly um, challenging or particularly gratifying? Or would you talk a little bit about Mm -hmm. ethnographic analysis as it shapes the book?
1: Sure. Um, yeah, so the, most of my book relies, or uh, heavy dominance of my book or does rely on interviews with scientists, policy officials, um, intelligence officials, and ex, uh, et cetera. And, um, you know, um, I would say one of the things that I was very fortunate to, that, that helped my research, or I was very fortunate, is because I'd spent quite a bit of time in the policy community prior to writing this book and, and prior to coming into the STS world um, is that I already developed a lot of uh, really good professional connections um, uh, with respect to some of these issues. And that definitely facilitated both my direct access to individuals or provided me with additional professional connections who could help me uh, make those connections. And and I'm definitely very grateful for the individuals who, um, uh, and particularly in the policy community, who have helped facilitate introductions with uh, different people that were uh, important parts of my book. Um, but it was very much, you know, uh, in part, uh, I think I was fortunate in that I'd had this policy experience prior to, um, you know, embarking on the book. Uh, I think, you know, it would be tricky if you're a newbie, um, I think just entering the, the policy world uh, without a lot of connections for some of these case studies I talk about in a book, it would be a little bit difficult, um, to gain access. Uh, not that it would be impossible, but I think it did help that I had some of these prior policy, uh, connections, uh, um, uh, that, that helped.
0: And if, um, just to follow a little bit up on that, because I can imagine, legions of graduate students right reading this book, getting really, really excited about it. And you must have graduate students you're training as well um, mm-hmm. wanting to get involved in this kind of research. And if you um, do now have graduate students who want to do this kind of STS research that's very informed by an interest in helping shape policy and also depending or dependent on rather an access to a kind of ethnographic uh, research with uh, people who are, you know, at, at the levels that you're talking about in the book, how do you advise them? Is that like, how does somebody at the level of graduate training get into a project that might maybe not be this comprehensive, but, you know, share some of the features of the kind of research that you did here, or do you um, advise them not to do that?
1: You know, I would say it kind of depends on what, what you kind of want to do in your research. Um, you know, in, in, and you don't necessarily have to go the route that that I did per se to still do meaningful um, security policy research using some of these approaches and techniques. I think um, with my background, have, having spent some time in the policy community, and in particular, um, I spent a year working in the State Department before I came to Cornell. Um, you know that facilitated certain doors and certain understandings of policy issues that um, I think would be more difficult if. An individual had not spent time within the policy community. Um, You know, I guess from my own experience, I do find it valuable if an individual, instead of being maintaining a strict boundary as being an outside academic researcher, if one can be comfortable with crossing those boundaries and maybe spending some time in the policy community um, in various ways, either working for uh, an NGO. Um, that works on some of these issues or um, potentially working in the government. I think it can give you some understandings of certain logics that are at play um, that might be a little bit more difficult to um, obtain as a a pure outsider, although, again, not impossible. Um, So I would be supportive, you know, if graduate students were interested in going to this area, to be open to, again, maybe doing some field work by just, you know, being a participant observer being involved um, in some kind of policy context, we can kind of see some of these issues uh, unfold.
0: It's actually really interesting because as and we'll, um, as we get into the arguments of the book in the the later chapters, um, just to mention a little bit something a little bit about this um, for a moment, this is really a way to think about how or s- specific models for how we might revise the way we think about graduate training too. You know, it's sort of mm. typical for somebody in an area studies program, like, for example, studying China, to take a period in the middle of their graduate training and go away and study Chinese language intensively or Japanese mm. intensively. But we don't, um, I mean, in a way that's not necessarily directly producing research results, right? This is a kind of language training. And the kind of training that you're talking about may, you know, it gives uh, me at least a way to think about something like a kind of language or cultural training for graduate students in STS who want to do this, that's not necessarily the year where you're going out and, you know, doing your archival research or doing your ethnographic research, but another important kind of training that might facilitate a kind of work that might not be possible otherwise, much the same way that language training for area study students does. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but yeah. Yeah, neither had I before you um, were talking about this. So all kinds of ways that the book is really interesting. So food for thought. Um, yeah. but, so as we get into the arguments of the book, there, let's uh, get into the other parts, or, or rather the later chapters. So there are some key issues that are going to recur throughout the book, and we'll, we'll look at them in turn as they come up in the different case studies. So issues of expertise, issues of the idea of analytic practice, and issues of the effects of secrecy, and not just secrecy as something that prevents knowledge production, but secrecy as something that can be very generative of knowledge production, which is really interesting. And so the case studies are going to take us through this in turn. But before we get there, you set up in Chapter 2 a dominant way of thinking about biotech based on the idea of a biotechnological revolution or a biotech revolution. And you call this a biotech revolution frame. So can you talk um, for a little bit before we get further into the ways that we're going to revise that frame about the idea of a biotechnological revolution frame and um, how that shapes what's going on in this part of the story?
1: Sure. So, you know, it's interesting um, how this kind of frame uh, idea kind of came about. You know, it sort of, again, came out sort of Organically, um, you know, as, as I'd been spending time in the policy community, you know, prior to coming to Cornell and working on this book, you know, I kept noticing these features just about how uh, biotechnology and discussions about biological weapons threats, how biotechnology was discussed. And um, it wasn't really until I sort of came to Cornell that I had to sort of, that I had the opportunity to sort of sit down and think about, you know, what's being reflected or what are these kinds of dominant components that, you know, I'm seeing. Um, and, uh, you know, again, how is that structuring how people think about um, this kind of threat? And so, you know, essentially, you know, again, in, in kind of thinking through this, what I saw in, again, reflecting on a lot of my own research, uh, as well as just um, reflecting on sort of what I'd been seeing, how bow threats were talked about in different kinds of presentations or different kinds of reports or articles that were published on these kinds of issues or how they were talked about in government government uh, types of settings, um, is essentially you you would see kind of this framework or this way of talking about biotechnology that really focused really on kind of the more um, material and technical uh, dimensions uh, of biotechnology. Um, and, um, you know, essentially with this, um, you know, there was this uh, assumption that um, as these uh Biological materials and technologies are available um, as, you know, how the sciences will continue to grow and advance, you know, how this will lead to um, revolutionary changes, not only in biotechnology, but then also the potential harms or threats uh, related to biotechnology on society. Um, And so, you know, again, as I was thinking through this, I was thinking about, well, you know, what are the different elements of this kind of framework? And and what I saw is, again, some kind of key features that kept getting reflected both explicitly and implicitly in how people would talk or write um, about uh, bioweapons issues. And I saw there was a lot of focus on sort of codified knowledge or uh, written information, the, the fact that you get biological information from textbooks or journal articles, a lot of it focused on written information Um, But again, an absence of then the other kind of knowledge in science, which is sort of know-how or tacit knowledge, the kind of hands-on way of uh, learning about uh, science and technology. Um, You also saw a lot of focus on sort of the end products uh, of technology in this framework instead of all of the kind of the messy work practices that are involved in getting to that end product. Um, A lot of assumptions about, you know, how biological materials are becoming increasingly accessible Uh, for example, um, even though, again, a little lack of recognition of, again, how sometimes it can be difficult um, uh, to obtain access to certain kinds of biological materials. Um, A lot of focus on the economic drivers of technology um, and assumptions about how, you know, uh, technology um, will commercially advance. uh, But, again, not focusing on, again, some of the different um, challenges uh, in that as well. (laughs) <laughs> um, you also saw in this kind of framework a focus kind of on the future um, and a lot of future-oriented um, concerns about where cutting-edge technologies are going to go uh, but with that, you know, I, I saw a marginalization of uh, existing technologies or even old cruder technologies. Um, those really weren't part of the conversation and then a lot of assumptions about how technologies are going to diffuse and globalize, but then a lack of recognition of, um, you know, how it can be difficult for certain technologies to uh, diffuse and uh, move and travel. Um, and then finally, you know, I saw a lot of assumptions about how technology is going to go, um, assumptions about that there's this linear march or exponential march of technology um, that can be assumed, uh, can be planned. And then with that, kind of the threat of biological weapons is going to follow that assumed technological trajectory. But, you know, as many of us know in STS, you know, technology doesn't work that way. Um, And again, I just saw a lack of uh, consideration of these alternative ways uh, of thinking about technology. So in my book, I sort of lay out um, uh, sort of what I see as these core elements um, of this biotech revolution frame uh, and how I see it being used in a variety of different um, talks and reports. Um, And then, you know, present an alternative framework. And and the one that I present is one possible different way of thinking about biotechnology. There could be others. Uh, But what I aim to do is say that the way that um, biotechnology, this biotech revolution frame, how it's presented is not the only way of thinking about biotechnology and and then how that might affect our understandings of bioweapons threats.
0: And as we move into the second part of the book, you're actually giving us another way. Um, You're offering a specific model for what might replace uh, or move us forward from a biotech revolution frame, and that's something that you're calling the biosocial frame. And so you've already talked a little bit about what that involves, um, just in contrast to some of the features of the biotech revolution frame, but I'll just also add, uh, or just to kind of synthesize what you've already said, Mm -hmm. um, you talk about the importance of uncodified knowledge, the importance of tacit knowledge, thinking about, uh, written communications, written formal scientific communications, not as the ultimate um, can only containers of information, but as partial and schematic maps um, of scientific process and scientific practices. You talk about the importance of acknowledging and understanding past work, so not just looking to the future, but looking to the past, and also assuming that there's not, in, like you've just mentioned, instead of um, imagining this one monolithic forward progress, technological trajectory, the ability to imagine multiple possible technological trajectories. Um, And one of, just to kind of highlight a little bit without asking you to talk too much about it for listeners, one of the really interesting things that happens in this part of the book is um, surprisingly, and and really interestingly for me, as someone interested in scientific communication, you talk about narrative theory a little bit. Mm -hmm. and Bring in Bakhtin's notion of the chronotope And so, this Mm -hmm. is actually a way to open up how we might think about a kind of comparative literature of um, scientific policy making and scientific policy uh, literature and practices that's also really interesting from the perspective of literature and science. Oh, thanks. Um, So, as we move into this part two, Science in a Social Context, where you're developing this idea of a biosocial frame. We present a bunch of case studies in these different chapters. And I want to ask you just a little bit about some of them because um, mm-hmm. they're really, really, really interesting. And it's fascinating for someone in my generation to read this book and be like, oh, yeah, I remember seeing a news program on that. <laughs> or, oh, yeah, I remember the bag of sugar. the, the <laughs> so, um, so Chapter 3 introduces a case study of different programs for synthetic genomics.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: can you talk a little bit about this category of synthetic genomics and just kind of why it's so important for this story and and why um, this matters for thinking about policies about bioweapons.
1: Sure, and I'm trying to now go back in time a little bit um, and think about why I got interested in this case in the first place. And a lot of it, again, I was working on bioweapons policy issues, and this was back in um, 2002, if I remember, or 2001, maybe, 2001, 2002. Um, when they were starting to come out with news reports of these new developments um, in biology, seeming to indicate that uh, biologists and um, uh, different kinds of biological scientists could now potentially create uh, biological organisms from scratch without using any kind of natural um, viral uh, components. Uh, And one of the landmark Papers that triggered a lot of policy debate, and this was the um, artificial creation of the polio virus, um, and this is one of the case studies that I talk about in my book. And I remember, again, I was following this from the policy side and that it generated a lot of controversy about whether this particular experiment should have been censored, um, whether the materials and methods sections should have been removed from this paper because it was too much of a roadmap for terrorism, that someone could pick up this scientific paper and, um, you know, potentially replicate this experiment, and unleash this artificial virus and uh, cause all kinds of mayhem. And you know, at that point, um, when this paper came out, uh, I had already been I'd already been kind of introduced and had been working with some STS ideas and and thinking more deeply about things like know-how and tacit knowledge. And this seemed to be when this paper emerged, it seemed to be the case that would almost seem to say tacit knowledge doesn't matter. if you can really create this artificial virus without using any as was reported in the media and in different policy uh, forums. But all you do basically is the materials, um, the basic commercially available materials, and this scientific paper, this written information, and that's all you need uh, to make this virus. Well, then it would seem to discount a lot of what STS has to say about the importance of tacit knowledge and know-how. And so I was very intrigued to then look at this as a possible exception. Um, Two existing ideas uh, about tacit knowledge and STS. And so that's how I embarked in looking at this case of synthetic gen- genomics. And soon after this paper was published, then, and still even today, there have been a series of different experiments showing additional artificial creations, synthetic creations of different um, viruses and uh, genomes. And, and there's been always this policy interest of, you know, is the technology getting um, so easy, so quickly? that we're really going to have to worry about this from a bioterrorism uh, perspective. And um, so that sort of gives a little bit of background of how I got interested um, in this kind of research area, uh, because, again, it seemed to provide a case that seemed to um, speak against the importance of thinking of, an, of considering it and thinking about sort of the social dimensions of science and technology seem to indicate that we don't need to, you know, we, we can no longer think about that now. It's all about materials and, you know, written information. Um, and so that's essentially how I started getting interested um, in this area of research uh, in the area of synthetic genomics um, uh, and the case studies I looked at uh, for the book.
0: And as you can hear in the background, my cat still agrees with everything we saying and thinks it's absolutely brilliant. And I'm sure she'll chime in again. <laughs> so as um, it's so you you um, mentioned that you got into this because there were arguments that um, this this was potentially a case where tacit knowledge um, didn't matter. And in fact, you're showing in the chapter that with by looking very closely at the social context and the practices that were um, being undertaken and that we're characterizing these three cases that you talk about, the 2002 poliovirus synthesis, the 2003 Phix x bacteriophage synthesis, and a 2008 artificial synthesis project on mycoplasma genitalium, you're showing actually that this is really, really hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that um, worries that this was going to transfer to, you know, something that the, your local bioterrorist could make, like in his backyard, um, were worries that were probably um, not reasonable given what we see when we look at the really specific context of what's happening at these three places. So how, um, can you talk a little bit about that? Sort of how does understanding what's happening in these three very local, very specific contexts um, change or give us an alternate approach for thinking about um, bioweapons threats that might emerge from synthetic biogenomics?
1: Sure. So I'm trying to think there's a lot of different things I could say here, how to best organize my thoughts. Um, So I guess, you know, one of the things that I was interested in doing with those cases is to really hone in deeply and to say it really matters looking at the local level scientific practices. Because again, what I have seen in terms of my experience, you know, interfacing and going in and out of the policy world is there's usually very little attention given to what actually goes on in the laboratory. There's a lot of assumptions about what goes on, but very little work that actually interrogates. And so my interest with these cases is to really, um, you know, go at a very micro level and talk about exactly how some of this work was done and to use that, uh, again, to sort of open up for discussion, you know, this issue that, you know, we need to look closely. And in terms of my research on these cases, what I found uh, in working on these cases is as, you know, consistent with, I think, um, a lot of STS literature that you know, you know even with the increasing availability of materials and increasingly available um, you know written information that's out there, um, that there's still a lot of know-how that goes on in these kinds of cutting edge uh, technologies how th- it, that hasn't really changed. It, it allows certain perhaps certain techniques to uh, be a little bit easier. but then there are a whole other set of techniques which still remain very much, craft-like, very much uh, local knowledge that's involved in getting some of these um, scientific techniques uh, to work. And um, so, again, in terms of, you know, what I was interested in showing with these cases is that the local context, the, the social context, what goes on in the laboratory matters. And in terms of really understanding the threat from some of this work, you, you, have, to, you have to look at that. You can't just ignore and assume certain things without looking in more closely. And one of the things that also um, struck me as I was looking at this progression of cases from 2001 to the um, venture experiment, 2003, and then the venture work later in 2008 um, is that what seems to be happening, uh, and it's, it will it'll be interesting to see how this plays out, but in future cases, but it seems like with these synthetic genomics experiments to create these more complicated, larger um, uh, genomes uh, and, uh, organisms, is that it's actually getting more complicated uh, rather than easier with uh, new technologies. You know, if you look at um, the different experiments, what you'll see over time is that um, the complexity grows and also the number of team members, the number of people actually involved to get these experiments to work has also grown quite a bit, um, uh, And which is the, the reverse of a lot of policy thinking would, would assume that you know, with increasing march of knowledge and technology that everything should be getting easier. Um, And it should devolve to anyone, one person in their backyard or in their garage or in their basement being able to do these techniques. What you see over time is actually it's becoming much more complex um, and a lot greater number of individuals that are involved to get some of these uh, larger uh, genomes uh, to uh, to uh, be created. Um, and so, again, that's another thing that I wanted to sort of point out is to challenge these existing assumptions about the ease and what's required and, and actually sort of say, well, actually, the trend seems to be showing something slightly different. Uh, and maybe that's important to look at when we talk about threat assessments for some of these cutting technologies. You know, what is required and, and what, when does it become, let's say, a larger team level effort? What are the different skill sets expertise um as you move into these different cutting edge domains, you know, what additional things are required beyond just the you know, simple commercially available materials or the written information. Um, so again, those were a couple things just um technically that I was interested in pointing out um, with those uh, particular case studies.
0: And these are issues that continue to be really important in shaping what happens with the next case study. Um, Chapter 4 looks at a case study of Soviet bioweapons development focusing on the Stepnogorsk, am I Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Stepnogorsk Scientific and Experimental Production Base, which is located in northwest, northwest Kazakhstan, and which was um, making Soviet anthrax 836. So can you talk a little bit about uh, how these issues that you're talking about in the context of the synthetic genomics um, uh, case study also uh, shaped or played out uh, what's happening here at Stepnogorsk? Uh,
1: Well, I was interested in looking at that uh, case to better understand what was involved in uh, creating essentially what was the Soviet's premier anthrax uh, biological weapon. Again, there was a lot of discussions going on in the 90s, um, about some of the ease of some of the Soviet, um, developments, bioweapons weapons developments. And again, I was interested in, in interrogating and packing some of that. And, um, and I was also in that uh, particular example, interested in trying to look at, you know, what was required to actually make, uh, this weapon. And, and what I found, it was, again, a very complex, complicated process um, and again this was counterintuitive because a lot of people would have assumed that you know the Soviets with all of their money, with all of the high highlightable political interest in developing this kind of weapons capability that it should have been relatively straightforward to create this kind of weapons technology and, and what I try and show again through this very detailed case study is that actually it was a lot of, um, it was a big challenge it was, there was a lot of difficulties behind the Soviets making their anthrax weapon and it gets to these same issues of tacit knowledge of how you um, get inter- interdisciplinary groups of weapons specialists to work together and to manage and coordinate the work. Um, there's a lot involved, even for a state. And this, uh, that case study, again, tries to contrast the synthetic genomics examples for trying to address, you know, some of these um, popular discussions about um, terrorist threats and terrorists using cutting-edge technologies. And with uh, Stephanie course case, I wanted to delve into, talk about, you know, let's look at even state-level uh, bioweapons uh, programs, and you know what can we learn from looking um, at a micro level about what went on with some of their weapons development?
0: And this actually be, as you mentioned in this chapter, this becomes really important for understanding what happens in the next case study in a way because people are concerned with issues of brain drain in this country. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? So,
1: in the nineties, in the mid, uh, with the collapse of the Soviet Union in the early nineteen nineties, and then throughout the nineteen nineties, there was a lot of concern about Soviet scientists, with all of the economic and political instability that happened with the collapse of the Soviet Union. That some of these weapon scientists, including biological weapon scientists um, in Russia and Central Asia, some of these former Soviet states, that they might be tempted or lured away. Uh, to work for um, uh, states like Iran, Iraq, North Korea, and might transfer some of their weapons knowledge uh, to some of these countries, which we had concerns that these um, countries were developing, their, trying to develop their own bioweapons programs and concerns about this kind of technology transfer, this brain drain that would be happening um, with some of these scientists being lured away uh, to work on some of these programs.
0: Right, and, and you're basically showing in the chapter that's kind of not super reasonable because of all the complicated infrastructure that was required to even make these experiments possible. You know, I think what I try and do is show
1: that this whole issue of um, technology diffusion, technology transfer, is more complicated than just moving one body um, or two bodies that you really have to think about, again, the social dimensions of how were these scientists, both individually as a team, how were they actually able to create this kinds of weapons capability. And again, it involves a lot of very complicated technical components, but also involves a lot of very specific social, organizational, managerial kind of factors that, that um, came into play as well. And then how, again, how you think about how that technology might move, you have to take that, those kinds of aspects into consideration as well if you're concerned about um, other countries developing these kinds of weapons. Great.
0: Now, as we move to um, the part three of the book and the, um, the last two parts of the book, really, we come to a really interesting case study, um, which is the case study of Iraq's bioweapons intelligence <laughs> assessments. And this is something that I think many of us have, um, have lived through, right? Seeing it on the news, it's really, really fascinating. <laughs> so you focus here on the figure of curveball. Can you uh-huh. introduce curveball um, for us as we get started? So for listeners who may not be familiar with that code
1: name. So Kerfal was an Iraqi defector who uh, came to light um, in the late 1990s, actually December of 1999, when he essentially um, merged in Germany and was seeking asylum there. And um, so as part of seeking asylum, he was um, interrogated, and he essentially revealed um, while he was in German custody that he had been a former uh, chemical engineer for Saddam Hussein's um biological weapons program. And so it's at that point um when German intelligence learns this information they pass it to US intelligence that then he becomes a very interesting um analytic object for uh, the US intelligence community.
0: Now, Chapter 5, and the chapters afterwards, actually, Chapter 5 through 7, all look at this context. Chapter 5 looks specifically at how CIA analysts and specialists were organized to produce knowledge about bioweapons threats and how this organization actually hindered knowledge production. And we go on to see how it hindered knowledge production, specifically in the case of looking at these, um, the idea of these mobile Iraqi bioweapons threats. Now, You talk about the importance here of the ordering of expertise, and the construction of expertise in the CIA, and this is coming at least in part or um, seems inspired at least in part on uh, the importance of expertise as an analytic in STS literature. So can you talk a little bit about the importance of what you call here the kind of balkanization of expertise in the CIA and how that actually helped determine what happens um, with this curveball of uh, information that comes in and what happens as a result to the um, assessment of the potential of or the existence of an Iraqi mobile weapons program.
1: Sure. So um, in the book, I guess, in these chapters, what I try and do is talk about how it really matters, how we understand the social world in which U.S. intelligence analysts work, um, and because that has an influence then on how they evaluate and interpret different kinds of information that they, they might receive as part of their, and how they even construct Um, their weapons assessments. And so um, in the chapter on expertise, I sort of look at, um, you know, how historically, how issues of expertise have changed over time within the CIA and how that ultimately and fundamentally had an impact on, for example, what kinds of expertise were thought to be relevant and were thought to be brought in to the analysis of the curveball case and, and the Rocky Mobile Bioweapons threat. And how certain aspects of expertise were not. And so in that chapter, I talk about how there were these uh, divides between uh, the intelligence analysts and those on the operations side, which is the, the clandestine, the spy side of the CIA, um, and how um, that particular division, there's a historical, there's a history for that historical division, and how um, because of that division, that that uh, hindered, for example, individuals who had um, spycraft um, uh, expertise, from them being able to participate and be involved in some of these uh, intelligence assessments on curveball, when they actually had some very valuable forms of expertise in terms of how you evaluate a source like curveball, what are the different methodologies that you might use to evaluate a source, all of that kinds of kind of knowledge and expertise was not brought to bear, um, in part because of these, these organizational changes um, that had occurred um, over time,
0: and the chapter gives a really detailed accounting and a really illuminating accounting of the specifics of those organizational changes, and um, it's, it's a really, really fascinating chapter. And it another re- it leads us into another equally fascinating chapter where you're going from the more general issue of expertise and looking at the daily practice, really the, the analytic practice of what intelligent re- intelligence reporting at the CIA actually looks like. And so mm-hmm. this is another really, really fascinating Uh, analysis here where you're looking at intelligence reporting as a form of writing and Mm -hmm. emphasizing the analogy of these practices that that go on to determine major U.S. policy to journalism. So can you talk a little bit about how that analogy is important and in what way this journalistic aspect of CIA intelligence writing really shapes a particular approach to um, bioweapons assessment?
1: Sure. Well, there have for, I would say for the past several, several years or maybe at least a decade, there have been a lot of individuals uh, in the um, intelligence studies community and others who have pointed attention to the fact that The practice of intelligence has changed over time, that, you know, how we might think of analysts, intelligence analysts, kind of working like an academic would, um, doing a lot of in-depth research over long periods of time, um, that that practice has actually fundamentally changed over the past 10 to 20 years, such that... um, uh, and there have been so many pressures that have put on intelligence analysts to become more like journalists. And so what I do in the chapters, I try and talk about if that's essentially the state of affairs, if intelligence analysts are are asked and tasked to operate more like journalists, what does that mean in terms of their daily practices? How is how is it that they then actually go about constructing their assessments if they're operating from this more journalistic um, style of writing? So in the book, I talk about how, and I uh, draw in some STS uh, resources here, Herbert Gons' book, um, where he does a a very interesting, um, detailed analysis of the practices that go on in news organizations, and I draw on that to Talk and show how there are some really interesting and um, at times uh, disconcerting analogies between sort of how news organizations, journalists operate, and how these intelligence analysts, particularly in the curveball case, how they were operating and how they were collecting and sifting through and working uh, with information. Um, and, you know, again, in, in looking at this, you know, I talk about how these pressures to produce like a journalist, to uh, produce sexy, um, you know, news information on a, you know, regular daily basis, um, how that has hindered, um, for example, longer-term, in-depth sort of analyses that, that could have then um, gathered more rich and detailed sets of information that, that could have um, helped uh, better discern what kind of source Curveball actually was.
0: And after, and there's also a really interesting account of the, the kind of nuts and bolts of what goes into and the different kinds of interests that go into producing the President's Daily Brief in that chapter that I just want to flag for listeners, because it's particularly fascinating as um, a kind of uh, account of literary production. Okay, so as we move into the last um, the last chapters of the book, we go from the account of expertise, the account of the analytic practice of writing, of uh, that goes into intelligence, intelligence reporting, and in Chapter 7, you focus in on a theme that's been there with us in different ways throughout the book, and that's the theme of secrecy, and specifically in the case of the production of the Iraqi Mobile Weapons bio-threat. So Chapter 7 looks in particular at how secrecy shaped and continues to shape how analysts and policymakers understood and and still understand the purported, uh, well, bioweapons, but specifically here the purported Iraqi bioweapons lab. You talk about various forms of secrecy at play, including secrecy as it is embedded within and as it helps shape ideas about material objects, Social relationships and work practices. Now, all of this, as you argue, produced a very particular kind of knowledge about the purported Iraqi bioweapons mobile program, and that was the, a vision of this as a covert technologically advanced enemy. Can you speak a little bit to that, sort of the way that secrecy um, informs that, or in whatever particular forms you find are most important, shaped this particular view of the Iraqi bioweapons program as being this particular kind of phenomenon? Oh, goodness. Let me think. I'll have to think about different
1: aspects. (laughs) So I would say, you know, there were definitely different aspects of secrecy that played a role, and they worked, I would say, in concert with his existing biotech revolution framework that, um, as I talk about earlier in the book, that structures a lot of the way that um, intelligence analysts and policy officials think about bioweapons. Kind of this coupling um, uh, again is um, is part of what helps explain um, what happened, for example, in the erroneous um, uh, Iraqi mobile lab assessments. And So with respect to secrecy, you know, I talk about how um, there was a lot of value um, placed on classified information, on secret human source information, Um, you know, as a part of how these intelligence organizations work, that secret information is considered to be kind of a special or privileged uh, kind of information. And and as a result, then you can kind of understand how when this um, highly classified information starts coming over from German intelligence about curveball, um, how um, that sort of essentially gets captured by intelligence analysts, and analysts and starts getting privileged, um, uh, you know, as a as a, an indication of a growing um, Iraqi uh, bioweapons threat. Mm-hmm. Um, there was also this this issue with secrecy, and again, what I found fascinating when I was talking to some, interviewing some policy officials, and actually some other individuals on the clandestine side about this case, um, in that you know these assumptions of secrecy and and what it reveals or what are assumed. So, for example, um, you know, as you can see as I develop in the book, there's a lot of missing information about curveball um, uh, that really wasn't there even at the time when these assessments were, were being done. And I sort of asked, um, you know, um Intelligence folks on the clandestine side as well as some policy officials well didn 't sort of this absence of some details about curveball or about the mobile lab program didn 't that bother you and and essentially, what was interesting is uh, that they talked about is how um, you know in their uh, classified world that you know they assumed this absence of evidence must be due to the fact that there's some kind of super secret um, classification restriction that didn't allow them. Uh, to see certain kinds of information. And it wasn't the fact that there wasn't any information at all or that there was uh, really poor information. They just sort of assumed that it just meant there must be something really good and juicy, you know, that's being uh, hidden, uh, you know, hidden away somewhere uh, where they couldn't see. So, um, again, this kind of facets of secrecy then um, allow for certain ideas um, about a mobile app to sort of um, be sustained, to travel, um to be assumed. Um, let's see other aspects of information, sort of more classical examples. There was a compartmentalization of information, different security restrictions that you know did occur, and this prohibited different kinds of exchanges, um, knowledge exchanges, let's say, between um, intelligence analysts uh, and um, uh, folks on the clandestine side, as well as intelligence analysts and other kinds of experts, um, where if you would have had more of an information knowledge exchange. Um, Again, some of these issues or conundrums, um, concerns about curveball might have surfaced uh, much earlier. And, um, you know, essentially what I talk about in the book is that, you know, it's not just when we think about secrecy and its effect on knowledge, it's not just about that it restricts certain information, the problems that come from not having access to information, but that secrecy can actually work. Um, uh, in this kind of generative fashion, actually kind of can create this alternative world um, uh, where you can assume this covert, um, advanced, uh, Iraqi mobile bioweapons uh, capability. Um, Even if, again, there's missing evidence or an absence of evidence or poor information, um, uh, how can still kind of generate this plausible alternative world that ultimately then uh, can have, um, you know, relevance um, uh, in a policy context.
0: That's great. And I think one of the really, um, in terms of speaking to larger STS, interests in context as well, one of the really interesting things that that part of the chapter does, this emphasis on the generative effect of secrecy, is offer uh, a different way of thinking about the, a discourse that's become really um, popular and influential in STS, which is this discourse of agnotology, right? Sort of the holding back of information as a production of ignorance is something that's, you know, typically understood in negative terms, and you're giving us a way here to think about secrecy um, and the absence of knowledge in productive, positive terms, which is just a really interesting thing to contrast, I think, and to put into dialogue with a larger discourse about agnotology. Now, part four of the book um, does a lot of things that we won't have time, that I won't have time to ask yeah. you to <laughs> talk about. Um, but what this does is it looks at and also provides alternative knowledge or uh, alternative models, rather, to the prot- production of bioweapons knowledge. So in chapter eight, you look at the efforts by the U.S. government since the 1990s to create new knowledge teams for looking at bioweapons capabilities. And you give us three examples here. And I won't ask you to talk about them, but I'll mm-hmm. just name them so that listeners know that they're there and know to look for them. These three efforts are the CIA Strategic Assessment Group, the Iraq Survey Group, and the Biological Sciences Expert Group. And in each of those cases, you give us a really, really, really nice and really useful accounting of the different ways Um, that these efforts fit into this larger framework um, that you've been developing throughout the whole book in ways that make it really interesting and and useful to compare and contrast. Now, finally, at the end of this chapter, and this is um, probably the last thing that I want to ask you about before we uh, wrap this up and and move to the conclusion, Mm -hmm. you offer your own proposal for how to restructure and improve U.S. bioweapons assessments. So I I wanted to give you a chance to talk a little bit about that and any aspects of that proposal that you're offering that you'd like to share with listeners.
1: Sure. Um, You know, in that chapter, essentially what I try and do is show that there are alternative models to producing knowledge uh, and that it matters the kind of framework that you use and different kinds of analytic practices that you choose um, as part of your um, way that you're going to conduct assessment. And so I do provide my own. I I list, as you mentioned, three other um, useful examples where there have been attempts to uh, improve knowledge in bioweapons assessments. And I talk about how there are useful features in those assessments, but they also have some um, existing limitations. And so what I try and do in terms of my own proposal is uh, try and combine, you know, essentially – What I've learned, you know, in terms of some of my different case study research, in terms of other kinds of examples of knowledge production, and essentially try and argue, um, you know, that there needs to be a new kind of experimental knowledge team for intelligence assessments on bioweapons that needs to be um, or that should be, I would argue, uh, I argue that it um, should be. Um, organized. And essentially what this would try and do is to try and uh, bring in kind of a better integration of um, analytic um, expertise as well as people um, on the clandestine side. It would try and integrate different kinds of technical and non-technical forms of knowledge. It would um, try and work uh, with a different kind of technological frame, what I've argued in my book about a social frame that really takes into account the social context um, of uh, science and technology. Um, So again, what I try and do with this proposal is sort of say there are different ways that you could uh, organize knowledge And, and here's one, here's my proposal that I think flows from these different case studies and different examples that I've provided. Um, But I definitely, um, part of what I like to do in the book is just to open up the possibility that there are different ways, whether you buy my way or uh, a different way, but just to open that up as a space for conversation in policy, because what I found in policy, the focus tends to be more on improving technical expertise or technical solutions is sort of the only way to improve or to do assessments. And, and again, what I try and do with this chapter and as well as in the conclusion is to talk about, to, to explore the possibility with intelligence and policy officials that there are
0: alternative ways. And do you have the, my final, final, final question before we wrap up, do you mm-hmm. have any indication of whether uh, or any sense of whether the proposal that you're offering here? is going to start to be implemented? I don't know. Is there anything specifically on the horizon that you can identify or or talk about that would involve uh, an effort to implement some of the specific suggestions that you're giving here in the book? So I've had some interesting uh, sidebar
1: conversations with different intel people that I know. And um, there are some who are intrigued uh, by what the book has to say, and they're curious to kind of talk with me more to maybe explore different ways of thinking. I would say there are probably other folks in the intelligence policy communities who are very much wedded to the existing way of doing assessments. And for them, it's a little bit harder, I think, because what I, what I am calling for them to do is in some ways almost, and I hate to use this term, but it's almost a paradigm shift in kind of how they think about assessments and a very different fundamental way, um, a change from what they're used to thinking about for assessments. And so, um, for them, it's a bit harder uh, to contemplate the kinds of changes that I propose. Um, so, you know, we'll see. I think, you know, as I've, as I've always thought with my work, I see it as a longer-term project. You know, what I'm trying to do is ultimately to, you know, try and change how people think about assessments. And that's a, a much longer-term time frame project than just, you know, Maybe a year after (laughs) my book is out, you know, and so, I mean, my interest is sort of to keep in conversation with different people in the intelligence policy communities and then just, you know, again, to hear what they have to say, to constructively
0: engage with them,
1: uh, uh, things along those lines.
0: Well, Kathleen, thank you so much for talking with me today. Um, There's a lot in the book that we talked about, but there's a whole lot that we actually didn't have time to talk about. There's a ton of material in this book. It's extraordinarily rich. Is there anything specific that we didn't cover but that you'd like to point out for listeners and perhaps um, especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book?
1: Um, so I guess, you know, what my book essentially tries to do, and I think what my research ultimately always tries to do, is have a constructive engagement uh, between um, folks such as myself in the academic community, as well as folks in the intelligence and policy communities. And, and part of my interest is to start um, new conversations about how, you know, how we can do assessments better. I think there is a recognition in the policy community that existing assessments, bio assessments, um, there have been a lot of shortcomings and failures. And, um, you know, I think for them as for, as well as myself, I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of um, value in starting, of okay, if there are these shortcomings, how can we think about new approaches to improving that?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so I definitely welcome and see my project as very much a conversation engagement Uh, even though, again, I might point out, um, certain things that I feel should be done differently or better. Um, I definitely, uh, hope that my work is seen as, um, offering kind of a positive, um, you know, constructive uh, set of recommendations to um, help improve um, intelligence assessments and and different kinds of assessments on bioweapons issues.
0: And with that in mind, what's next for you now that the book is out? And again, congratulations on the book. What uh, project or projects are currently inspiring you?
1: Well, you know, um, after doing the Iraq case, I have become completely fascinated with the intelligence community. (laughs) And so a lot of my work, and again, I see this as a much longer-term project, um, is I'm very much continuing to have this interest in studying sort of work practices, um, how knowledge is produced um, in the intelligence community on um, these kinds of assessments as well as, um, I would say, a broader category of assessments. So what my work now is is, is kind of exploring... um, you know, how one might do research on this with the intelligence community. It's, and it's, you know, funny because, um, you know, because I've been involved in the policy community, um, even though there are challenges to doing interviews and doing research in the policy community, it's definitely a much more open community um, than the intelligence community. And so um, part of my challenge is, you know, trying to think of ways where I can do the kinds of micro level detailed studies that I like to do, um, and that I feel they're important to do. Um, but how did that when you're dealing with, um, classification issues, you know, secrecy or just concerns about secrecy, um, you know, with members of the intelligence community. So, um, that is, I, again, I see a much longer project, um, in how I develop relationships and, um, entry points into the intelligence community um, to do this kind of work.
0: Well, sounds great. Thank you so much again for talking with me. Uh, congratulations and best of luck with that uh, new research. Oh, well, thanks so much. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. My cat and I both thank you very much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time.